0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. Two days after the Tucson Massacre, I was sitting in a New York radiology lab, waiting for an MRI on a torn left shoulder. It was late evening, and the only other patient in the lounge was a woman with short silver hair who was my senior and perhaps slightly senior to me, although that's getting difficult to be these (laughs) days. We had been there for two hours, just the two of us and the receptionist, passing the time by making small talk and sharing a dog-eared copy of the day's New York Times and three very worn copies of People magazine. And now as time dragged on, 10 o'clock, 10.15, in the evening, we were staring mindlessly at a muted television set high on a wall above the receptionist desk and tuned to a crime show on a cable channel, I think it was A&E. Blood splashed across the screen as killers stalked their victims and in turn were dispatched by police in gory pursuit. I lost count of the bodies and the guns, weapons that could have come right off the racks of the convention of the National Rifle Association. Although there was no sound from the TV, we couldn't miss the reminder that violence sells in America and the people who profit from violence in real life and popular culture love it. But did you know that between 1933, the year before I was born, and today, more than 1.4 million Americans have been casualties of gunfire? Did you know that between 1979 and 1997, more Americans were killed by guns than have been killed in all of our wars since the Revolution? And yet, in the days just after that massacre, the sale of Glock 9s The gun used by the killer doubled in Arizona, and the gun lobby pushed for a bill to allow concealed weapons on college campuses. I made Celeste take hers off a moment ago before she (laughs) introduced me. This morning's Washington Post, which I read online, A major story on the front page of the Washington Post says the number of guns with high-capacity magazines, like the one used in Tucson, seized by Virginia police dropped during the 10 years when there was a federal law banning automatic weapons, but when George Bush and the Republican Party and many Democrats pushed for the repeal of the end of that bill in 2004, since then the number of high-capacity magazines seized by Virginia police rebounded. In other words, the law was beginning to make a dent in the market by the time it ended. President Obama's Tucson memorial speech was eloquent and moving, but I kept waiting for him to say that the great task remaining before us is redeeming America from the fantasy that the law can allow any inflamed lunatic easily to acquire murderous weapons without the expectation of murderous, murderous consequences. Alas, no, no such luck. Instead, the headline on a recent page of my, one of my favorite websites, talkingpointsmemo.com, read, no signs Obama will shift on gun control after Gifford's shooting. It seems that nothing will sufficiently stiffen the backbone of our politicians, including our president, to take on the NRA, which has been perpetrating one of the great frauds of American history, namely that a Jared Lee Loughran, armed with a Glock 9 and a 31-round clip, qualifies as material for the well-regulated militia prescribed by the Constitution. <laughs> that is just not so. And if, if you wonder, as I do, how we've reached this stage of democracy where we cannot solve the problems we have created for ourselves, look no further than the overbearing muscle and venal logic of the NRA and its stranglehold on politics. So it is that even in a radiology lab in the heart of Manhattan, ostensibly a neutral zone for healing at that, you can escape the toxic emissions of a violent culture that has turned democracy into what my friend the media scholar Henry Giroux calls a culture of cruelty, a culture Of cruelty. So, my waiting room companion and I were sitting there saying little when she suddenly turned to me and asked, Are you optimistic about our country? What do you mean? Well, she said, Sometimes I sense that it's sinking around me like a great ocean liner. And many of us are not going to make it off. Almost instantly, so help me, almost instantly, the metaphor took, and my head was filled with images from James Cameron's epic Titanic. I could see those lifeboats bobbing in the dark waters, the doomed passengers lining the railings of the ship, and the small orchestra gathered on the forward deck playing nearer my God to thee. Weird, weird, I thought to myself, that the lady's fears call the cells in my brain to associate the sinking of the Titanic with the fate of democracy. I said nothing to her about it. She seemed forlorn enough. But her question had jolted me. Like so many other Americans, optimism is embedded deep in my psyche. But as with so many other people, it doesn't surface as often these days as it used to. But I didn't say all this to her. Instead, I responded superficially, superficially, tongue in cheek, half in cheek. And I said, well, you remind me of the question I once put to a friend of mine on Wall Street. I asked him what he thought about the future of the market. He replied, I'm optimistic. Then why do you look so worried, I asked. And he replied, I'm not sure my optimism is justified. (laughs) She laughed lightly, just to humor me, I'm sure. And then she persisted. So are you optimistic? And if you are, how do you justify your optimism? I was struggling for an honest answer when the door opened and a technician motioned me to follow him and I breathed a sigh of relief, said farewell to my melancholy companion and took my leave. Those of you who've had an MRI know it makes a terrible racket and it did as I lay in its tubular embrace for almost half an hour. It knocked, whined and rattled. But I'm telling you the truth, I hardly noticed. Instead I was focused on her question and my failure to give her more than a trite answer. Let me tell you, as that machine in whose bosom I was entombed began to emit its terminal groans, all I could hear from some distant place were the strains of, nearer my God to thee. (laughs) Make of that what you will. But on the subway home that night, and many, many times since, I've thought of our conversation and her question. If she were here today, I don't know her name. I can't track her down. But if she were here today, here is how I would answer her. I am an optimist, because human beings are capable of goodness. I see it around me in my wife, Judith, and family, in my friends and colleagues, and of course, in the world far beyond my own circle. If you were following news of the recent floods that are ravaging huge swaths of Australia, you may have heard about the two brothers, one of them 13, the other 10, who were in the car with their mother when a wall of water crashed down on them. Rescueers struggled to reach them, but only one got through he realized that the force of the flood was so fierce that he could only get one of them to safety at a time. When the older boy recognized this too, he insisted the rescuer take the younger brother first. The man did, managing to carry the boy to higher ground and start back to the car. But before he could get there, the older brother and their mother were washed away. The tragedies of life would be unspeakable, would they not? Except for something in the human being, even in a 13-year-old, that will say, if you can only save one of us, save my brother. And the heroes of the Tucson massacre, the older man, three years older than I am, who threw himself across his wife to protect her. She lived, he died. The two bystanders, one of them bleeding from his own head wounds, who jumped the gunman as he tried to reload, and and the woman who grabbed the clip as he tried to reload. And the student intern, no older than you, who was on Representative Gifford's staff, whose first instinct was to run toward his fallen leader, using his high school training in emergency medicine to slow her bleeding and probably save her life. All around us, look around. I mean, look to your left, would you? Now to your right. All around us are heroes with a thousand faces. Joseph Campbell wrote a book, with that title years ago. Many of you will remember Joe Campbell, the scholar of comparative religion and literature, who became one of our foremost mythologists. His archives are just a few miles from here, and Carol, are you here? If you were going to come, yes, back there, who, uh, who manages those that wonderful place. My conversations with him on the power of myth filmed at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch here in California became the most popular of the many series I've done for PBS. In one of them, Joe was explaining the influence on his thinking of the philosopher Schopenhauer, who in a famous essay had once asked himself, how is it that a human being can so participate in the peril or pain of another human being that without thought, spontaneously, he or she sacrifices his own life to the other. How can it happen, Schopenhauer asked, that what we normally think of as the first law of nature and self-preservation is suddenly dissolved and we put another's well-being ahead of our own? Campbell then told me a story that had unfolded near his home in Hawaii at a place called the Pali. I think that's the pronunciation of it where the trade winds from the north come rushing through a great ridge of mountains. People go up there to have their hair blown in the winds, if they have it. And sometimes they go up there to commit suicide, like jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. One day, said Joe, two policemen were driving up the Pali Road when they saw just beyond the railing a young man about to jump. One of the policemen leaped from the car and grabbed him. But the momentum of the two of them going over at the same time, almost carried them off the cliff together. The policeman wouldn't let go. And just in time, his partner arrived and pulled the two of them back. When a newspaper reporter asked the first policeman, why didn't you let go? You could have been killed. He answered, I couldn't let go. If I had, I wouldn't have lived another day of my life. Campbell then asked me, do you realize what had suddenly happened to that policeman who had given himself over to death to save a stranger. Everything else in his life had dropped off. The wishes and hopes for a lifetime no longer mattered. What mattered was saving that young man, even at the cost of his own life. How come Because, said Campbell, interpreting Schopenhauer, such a psychological crisis represents the breakthrough of a metaphysical reality, which is that you and the other are two aspects of the one life, and your apparent separateness is but an effect of the way we experience forms under the conditions of space and time. Our true reality, he said, our true reality is our identity and unity with all life. Perhaps that's another way of saying we're all in this together. And perhaps the Hindus, I think it is, a sect had it right, that when you give the traditional greeting, you're recognizing the divinity in the other of which you are a part. In mythology, the hero gives us his or her life, gives his or her life to some order of realization of this truth. Campbell said, this is also the truth of your life. And he was saying it to me. This is the truth of your life. As I'm saying it to you, this is the truth of your life and your life and your life. It's the reason each of us harbors within us, and it's why I ask you to look left and right. It's the reason each of us harbors within us a potential hero. You're sitting next to two potential heroes, and one is sitting in your seat. Take the imperative that we love our neighbor, one of the hardest of all religious concepts. If I were a Catholic, I would have to go to confession every day because I don't love all my neighbors. But, Campbell said, it it, it puts us in tune with this truth. But whether you love your neighbors or not, and I confess, as I said, that I've had neighbors I would just let drop off that bridge. (laughs) One of them cut down all the trees behind our house once after he bought his house. When this truth claims you, when it holds you, when it rises from within you, you may risk everything for someone else and not really know why you do so. Who can forget? I can't forget. My wife and I were awake that morning. We lived three hours from ground zero, and our office is three miles from ground zero, and our office is one mile from ground zero. And We heard about the second plane on the way to our television station, where we spent the next week helping to keep it on the air because our engineer had been killed in the technical facilities above the World Trade Center, the transmission. The heroes of the hour, as many of you remember, were first responders who sprang into action when the terrorists struck the World Trade Center. Most were public employers drawing a modest middle-class income for extremely dangerous work. All these years later here in Santa Barbara, I can see in my mind's eye those firemen who just kept climbing, going up those darkened stairs through billowing smoke toward roaring flames in the midst of all that horror They held on to their humanity and did their duty at the cost of their own lives. You will want to read the new book by Rebecca Solnit, one of our finest nonfiction writers. Its title is A Paradise Built in Hell. And it's a study of what people do in disasters and why it matters. Ultimately, it's about human goodness and why it matters solely set straight those hollywood producers and directors who relish making fur- films that show terrified mobs screaming in the streets after calamity and turning to looting, murder and cannibalism not so she writes spurred by her own experience in california's loma prieta earthquake She began to dig deeply into other disasters, the 1917 explosion in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, 9-11 in New York, and Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. She reports that in the aftermath of each calamity, ordinary people become altruistic, resourceful, and brave, striving to save other people's lives or reaching out to strangers with random acts of kindness. Paradoxically, they often find in the aftermath of disaster the sense of community and purpose that is otherwise absent from their lives. That's the message of the book. The desires and possibilities are so powerful that they shine from wreckage, carnage, and ashes. Now, of course, it doesn't take disasters to bring out goodness. What Schopenhauer was saying in his celebrated essay is that in small ways we can see this happening every day, all the time, moving in the world, people doing selfless things to and for each other. Rebecca Solit eloquently dwells on this, and I couldn't recommend this book to you more highly. She says, what sustains life is far closer to home and more essential than market forces and much more interesting than selfishness. Most of the real work on this planet, she said, is not done for profit. It's done at home, for each other, for affection, out of idealism. And it starts with the heroic effort of parents to sustain each helpless human being, a child, for all those years before fending for yourself becomes feasible. And it's not just confined to home. What she called, and I love this term, a shadow system of kindness provides soup kitchens, food pantries, and giveaways, takes in the unemployed, evicted, and foreclosed upon, defends the indigent and the immigrant, tutors the poorly schooled. comforts the neglected, provides loans, gifts, donations, and a thousand other forms of practical solidarity, as well as emotional support. I saw it yesterday visiting my dear friends, John and Lillian Lovelace, at their home in Los Angeles. John has been in the hospital. He's struggling. Lillian is totally devoted to him and we sat by his bed for two hours talking and every now and then she would look up at him and he would look back at her and something passed between them for which not even a poet can articulate. And so it goes on. All the time others seek to reform or transform the system from the inside out and in this way, inch by inch, Inroads have been made on many fronts over the past half century, grounds for optimism. Many years ago, when Judith and I were kids, a young couple traveling in England, we came upon the ruins of an old church with an inscription so worn by time and the elements that it was barely legible. But when we made them out, the words proved memorable in the year 1653, when all things in the kingdom were either profaned or demolished, this church was built by Sir Richard Shirley, whose singular praise it was to do the best of things in the worst of times. I am an optimist because there are people who do the best of things in the worst of times people who imagine a different future, and get up every morning to try to do something to bring it about, grounds for optimism. Let me assure you there's nothing sentimental about this. I was born in the Great Depression. My father was knocked down and almost out by it. I lived through World War II, the Korean War, the Cold War, and the Vietnam War. I grew up in the South where white supremacists ruled, I lived through the civil rights movement as blacks took on the water hoses and dogs to fight back. I lived through the assassination of two Kennedys and Martin Luther King, through the rage in our inner cities, through 9-11 and two ensuing wars, one of which continues to this day, and through the great financial and economic collapse of 2008. As a journalist, I pulled back the rug on the dark corners and dirty floors of our political system. And I've chronicled the rising plutocracy that now threatens our democracy. And I've, of course, experienced losses of my own, like all of you. And through all of this, I've come to see the world without rose-colored glasses. And I've come to see civilization as a thin veneer of civility stretched across the passions of the human heart. So fragile. It can come apart at any moment. And this is what I wish I had said to the stranger in the waiting room. This is why I'm not sure my optimism is justified. The Catholic social worker whom I once interviewed in a marvelous early documentary, Dorothy Day, said we should build a world that helps bring out our goodness. But we haven't. While human beings have an instinct, even a talent, for empathy and collaboration, our politics doesn't enlist and nurture that instinct. Instead of helping us to live constructively and cooperatively in the spirit of we the people, which is based upon a moral compact, politics has become a winner-take-all juggernaut. Powered by malignant narcissism. And life in America today is becoming a war of all against all, putting the weak and the vulnerable working people and the middle class at the mercy of money, power, and privilege. Here, Hear Glenn Beck, the fabulist of Fox News. When he spoke about a year ago at the annual gathering in Washington of conservative activists, he sounded as if he were voicing the social Darwinism of the late 19th century when the survival of the fittest dogma of the Industrial Revolution produced astonishing wealth and devastating misery. Adopting the French notion of laissez-nous-faire, leave us be, The strong pursued the self-interest with the vast discrepancies between them, tearing America apart. In his speech, Beck exulted in the vision of carnage as the spoils of victory. He mocked the very notion of extending a helping hand to someone in need. We believe in the right of the individual, he said. You can disagree with me. You can make your own path, but I'm not going to pay for your mistakes. And I don't expect you to pay for my mistakes. We're all going to make them, but we all have the right to move down that road. What we don't have the right to is health care, housing, or handouts. Handouts. Now, his audience of ideologues knew what he meant, and they laughed and applauded when he brought them to applause by saying, if you don't think it's all about competition, go watch the Lions eat the weakest. The law of the jungle, Glenn Beck's world, the world our politics is creating as we speak. Much of financial capitalism today thrives on the same animal spirit. Consider Ray Dalio. He's the billionaire hedge fund operator who reportedly made $780 million in 2008, the year of the Great Collapse. He's embodied his philosophy in a collection of maxims under the title Principles. Like Beck, he's a carnivorous predator. His advice, and I'm not making this up. I couldn't make this up. His advice, be a hyena, attack the wildebeest. Wildebeest, as I'm sure you know, are antelope, native to South Africa. They're no match for the dog-like, flesh-eating, spotted hyena that gorges on them. Some hyenas have a howl that has been compared to a fiendish laugh, a sound commonly heard at uh, Goldman Sachs, especially when <laughs> the bonuses are handed out. So here, here, here is what... I'm just, I'm just kidding Lloyd, you know that. So here is what the billionaire hedge fund manager says about thriving in a ruthless world where the weak are at the mercy of the strong. And this is a direct quote. When a pack of hyenas takes down a young wildebeest, is that good or evil? At face value that might not be good because it seems cruel and the poor wildebeest suffers and dies. Some people might even say that the hyenas are evil. Yet this type of apparently cruel behavior exists throughout the animal kingdom, like death itself. It is integral to the enormously complex and efficient system that has worked for a long, as long as there's been life. It is good for the both of them, both the hyena who are operating in their self-interest and the interest of the greater system, including those of the wildebeest, because killing and eating the wildebeest fosters evolution, the natural process of improvement. In fact, If you changed anything about the way that dynamic works, the overall outcome would be worse. And here's the kicker. Here's how the world looks from the top of the food chain. If you see yourself as a hyena and the rest of us at Wildebeest, you agree with Ray when he says, like the hyena attacking the wildebeest, successful people might not even know if or how their pursuit of self-interest helps society. But it typically does. Not this round, Ray. Not this round. We allegedly have a civilization which has taken a long time to overcome the primal instincts of the jungle. But this time, the hyenas have left a wasteland. The single-minded pursuit of wealth for its own sake with no regard for the fate of others has thrown millions out of work and homes stolen their hope and dignity and once again as in the first gilded era torn America apart and the end is not in sight the writer Larry Beinhart said it the other day he wrote the wag the dog as you know The class war launched by America's wealthiest is getting more savage. Here's Timothy Noah writing in the online journal Slate about America being the United States of inequality. Using information compiled by the CIA, no Marxist organization, by the way, he says that income distribution in the U.S. has become more unequal then in Guyana, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and roughly on par with Uruguay, Argentina, and Ecuador. And yet another study predicts that if present trends continue by 2043, just 32 years from now, the U.S. will have the same income inequality as Mexico, as it is the richest 1% of America's households now has a higher net worth than the bottom 24 million households. We have gone from an economy where most of the nation's income in my generation accrued to the bottom 90% of households, this was right after the war, to one in which more than half goes to the richest 1%. Meanwhile, nearly 44 million people we're living in poverty in 2009, an increase of 4 million in just one year. And even as we sit here, some 17 million of them are living in extreme poverty for families of four with an annual income of $11,000 or less. Now, I know these numbers can cause the eye to glaze over, but as some very wise fellow once remarked, it is the mark of a truly educated person to be deeply moved by statistics. (laughs) And I know this is a deeply educated audience. (laughs) Remember, too, the counsel of the great humanitarian Albert Schweitzer to think occasionally of the suffering of which you spare yourself the sight. So despite, despite the setting of this beautiful campus and the city here on the rim of the Pacific Ocean, I have to tell you as a journalist who travels the country regularly that much of America is not a pretty sight today. The economist Robert Reich, whom I greatly respect, former Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton, says our economic problems stem from this enormous concentration of income and wealth at the top, the biggest since 1928, the year before the first Great Depression. While the rich have been getting better, and many of my friends are in that circle, incomes have stagnated for almost everyone else. And even the moderate increase that has been registered in middle and slightly lower level incomes has come because there's more than one job now in a family. There are two and sometimes three jobs being held by one person or two people or three people. The result is that Americans no longer have the purchasing power, says Wright, to keep the economy going at full capacity. Now, conservatives say we have to accept this situation in the name of freedom, the freedom of people to make as much money as they can or want and to keep it. I understand that. But the economist Marcellus Andrew answers that. Let me quote you. You can't be free in the United States if you can't read, write, and count. If you can't get a job because you don't have useful skills, if you aren't treated fairly by the courts and police, if you are harassed, beaten, or killed because of your race or gender or sexual preference, if free markets stick it to you by making everything cost more than it should, especially things you need, like health care, housing, and schools, you cannot be free if you have the bad luck to be born to incompetent parents, if you live in a city with lousy schools, if your neighborhood is full of angry and depressed people who react to life's troubles by hurting and killing each other and maybe you too. There is another definition of freedom. And there's another definition here too. Before I retired my PBS series last May, I interviewed the distinguished British epidemiologists Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who had just published a book I also highly recommend to you. I hope you brought your tote bags today, (laughs) titled Spirit Level, Why Greater Equality Makes Societies Stronger. They found in studying countries all over the world, Europe, Asia, Latin America, that gross inequality, like we're experiencing in America today, they say, leads to high rates of violent crime, high narcotics use, high teenage birth rates, obesity, and even high heart attacks. Furthermore, when people's experiences, and this gets to the spiritual and political compact we're supposed to have because of that preamble to the Constitution, the most powerful part of that document, When people's experiences have virtually nothing in common because of the economic chasm that separates their lives, they experience little sympathy for one another. And this produces a social class, financial, political, and media elites, with all the characteristics of sociopaths, that is, radically deprived of empathy. Shakespeare has Lear asked Gloucester on the heath, how do you see the world? And Gloucester, who is blind, blind Gloucester replies, I see it feelingly. I see it feelingly. I fear many of the people at the top today with eyes fully open, never see the world feelingly. They even hold in contempt, as we saw with Dave Beck, that Glenn Beck, extending a helping hand. Instead, they take their inspiration from the protagonist in Tom Wolfe's 1987 novel, Bonfire of the Vanities, who told his investment banker, insulate, 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 insulate. And that's what they've been doing. The truth is, and let me tell you, this hurts to say. The truth is our political and economic system today is deeply corrupted. It's what the historian Eric Alderman calls kabuki democracy the title of his new book. From a di- distance, it resembles a democratic process, but in substance, it mocks the very intentions of democracy. One of our wisest public philosophers, Sheldon Wolin, who used to teach at the University of California, and then at Princeton, now retired at 92, taught us in his books that democracy is about the conditions that make it possible for ordinary people to better their lives by becoming political beings, and by making power responsive to their hopes and needs. That's what democracy is. But that's not the case today. Our political system now is geared to supporting the accumulation of vast wealth at the top. And instead of trying to tackle our massive and costless inequality, which will take this country right out from under us by the time some of your children are trying to get into the University of California at Santa Barbara, instead of trying to tackle our massive and costly inequality, the movers and shakers in both parties are asking ordinary people to embrace austerity and cut public services even as they're giving the richest Americans more tax cuts and windfalls. We we have reached this moment by design. 30 years ago, ideologues and many in our corporate class especially at the Business Roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce. By the way, the Chamber of Commerce, you know they opposed the recent first responders bill, the bill that Congress had trouble passing that would pay for the medical costs of those men who went up there and, and, and survived but came down with terrific internal uh, diseases. They opposed it because the bill provided that it be paid for by returning some of the profits from overseas and taxing them. And the Chamber of Commerce opposed that bill because of that. But anyway, 30 years ago, many of these people set out to divide and conquer, to fund electoral conflict for the purpose of forging a political class that would govern in its interests. And they did it. Which brings me to some homework. I want to ask you, when you finish reading Rebecca Solnit's book and Eric Alderman's book, I want to ask you to read this book, new book, Winner Take All Politics. It's written by two of our best-known political scientists, Jacob Hacker, who teaches at Yale, and Paul Pearson, who teaches at your sister institution in Berkeley. The title, Winner Take All Politics, based on solid documented research and written in clear, plain language like Thomas Paine's Common Sense. They tell a powerful story that every American should know. The story is the subtitle of the book, How Washington Made the Rich Richer and Turned Its Back on the Middle Class. If you're a Republican, you're not going to like it. They pull no punches in reporting how the GOP, the grand old party, has come to stand for guardians of privilege. With one strategy, lock into place the privileges and powers of the rich, slash public spending to reduce the budget, but don't touch those at the top. If you're a Democrat, you're not going to like this, because they spare no detail in describing how your party's movers and shakers sold its soul to financial elites and abandoned working people and the middle class. But but partisan loyalties aside, if you have been puzzled as to why after prosperity was so effectively distributed up and down the income ladder in the generation following World War II, the rewards of economic growth then started going mostly to those at the top, If you have wondered why we have gone from an economy in which most, as I said, of the nation's income accrued to the bottom 90 percent to one in which more than half now goes to the richest 1 percent, why, to put it another way, the average income of the top 1 percent more than tripled in just over a quarter of a century, and if you are perplexed as to why politicians continue to slash taxes on the rich even as their wealth has exploded, in other words, increasing the deficit for the benefit of the wealthy, You'll find the answers in here delivered as skillfully as if the detective were Agatha Christie, Miss Marple, John Grisham, or Inspector Morris. And this is no novel or masterpiece theater. You'll likely be surprised, those of you like Paul, you'll likely be surprised that the authors mostly absolve the usual suspects about what's happened to our economy. Foreign trade, financial globalization, technology, better education at the top, they don't think those have been that influential. The guilty party in their indictment, and I think with the evidence conviction, is politics. Winner take all politics, they say, has become the defining feature of American life. In a sense, a sentence, the have it alls have managed to shift the risks of their reckless behavior downward, saddling Americans with greater debt, tearing gaping holes in the safety net and imposing broad financial cost on workers, investors, ordinary investors, and taxpayers. They lay out how it was done. And while I do spoil your fun in reading a well-told whodunit, well-received and well-reviewed, by the way, here's a synopsis. Thirty years ago, they say, these elites set out on a long march to take over the political system. They were determined to reverse the progressive tax policies and regulations that had helped spread prosperity broadly through the population, pooling huge sums of money. They went after unions in order to weaken the one nationwide organization that mobilized and fought for middle-class jobs and wages. They created think tanks and corporate uh, and propaganda organs to announce a pro-corporate agenda, and they poured money into Republican campaigns until just about every Republican official was on board to give organized business what it wanted, tax breaks, loopholes, subsidies, handcuffs on unions, and silence on corporate crimes, silence and complicity. Democrats looked on in awe and finally said in the mid-1980s, led by Tony Cuello, one of your Democrats from California, hey, why not us? If unions no longer have the money we need, we'll go where the money is. We'll go to Wall Street and the corporations and give them what they will pay for. And now both parties were supplicants of deep pockets and large, well-funded organizations were fighting for them, leaving working people and the middle class with no comparable force on their side fighting back. As for poor people, forget it. They were on o- their own in that rapacious wilderness where Glenn Beck, giant banks, And multinational corporations responsible to no one are kings of the jungle. And they won. They won. That explains most of what has happened in the last few years in politics and explains the tension on President Obama as he went to a city where the opposition party had only one word as its platform, no. No. Empathy, power. Do they see the world feeding me? You must also read. You're going to be busy. (laughs) You must also read the lead article in this month's issue of The Atlantic, which is one of the best magazines still publishing. It's called The Rise of the New Global Elite, and it's written by a remarkable woman who herself is no Marxist, but a great financial reporter, Christia Freeland, I just want to read you three short paragraphs. The U.S.-based CEO of one of the world's largest hedge funds told me that his firm's investment committee often discusses the question of who wins and who loses in today's economy. In a recent internal debate, he said, one of his senior colleagues had argued that the hollowing out of the American middle class didn't really matter. His point was that if the transformation of the world economy lifts Four people in China and India out of poverty and into the middle class, and meanwhile means one American drops out of the middle class. That's not such a bad trade. I can understand that. But they don't answer the question of what happens to the middle class in America when it has dropped out. I heard a similar sentiment from the Taiwanese-born 30-something CFO of a US internet company, a gentle and prudentious man who went from public school to Harvard He's nonetheless not terribly sympathetic to the complaints of the modern of the American middle class. We demand a higher paycheck than the rest of the world, he told me. So if you're going to demand 10 times the paycheck, you need to deliver 10 times the value. It sounds harsh, but maybe people in the middle class need to take a pay cut. At last summer's Aspen Ideas Festival, the CEO of a Silicon Valley firm said that if he were starting from scratch, only 20% of his workforce would be domestic. This year, almost 90% of our sales will be outside the U.S. The pull to be close to the customers, most of them in Asia, is enormous. Speaking at the same conference, the CEO of Allstate lamented this global reality. I can get workers anywhere in the world. It is a problem for America, but it is not necessarily a problem for American business. Good economics. Smart economics but leaves unanswered the moral obligation that we have to each other. Now I'm back to the beginning of this talk, to create a society that is fair and just. We will never have economic income equality. That's just not the way the world works. There will always be people who make a lot more money than people who don't. But there are ways to build a moral economy that we have yet to explore. The present system, quite frankly, as we learned in 2008, now is back in place. The present system won't work much longer. We need imagination. We need daring. We need innovation. And above all, we need cooperation to figure out how America moves into this 21st century further, honoring that promise inherent in our declaration life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness honoring that and taking as our ethical bond those opening words of the Constitution its preamble, we the people not you the people and me up here, not them the people and not those over there We, the people. We've done it before. I said this is the second Gilded Age. The first one was a time of these enormous disparities between the top and the bottom and the oppression of millions of people. The 1920s, another time in which we had this enormous inequality as well. Each time, we found a way, sometimes by sheer luck, but also by fortitude and confidence and leadership. Come out of that and get back on the right road. I believe we can do it now. But let me tell you something. Put your faith not in princes and not in parties. Put yourself, put your faith in yourself and kindred spirits like you. That's the place to begin. It's never easy to take on organized power, the money trust, And it takes a long time. But remember, people with money, and I have good friends who have it, people with money have the right to buy more cars than anyone else, more homes, more vacations, more gadgets, and more gizmos. But they don't have the right to buy more democracy. That's ours if we claim it. Thank you. Thank you. When I interview someone, what, how do I know what makes a good question? Well, I'm never sure. Every interview, every question is a, is a leap of faith and often into a bottomless pit. Uh, but it comes out differently because I edit, and I have the power of editing. Uh, so, by the way, I, you know I'm not like the fighter pilot who, if he loses his engine, has to parachute. I know that I'm going to bail myself out uh, a little later. But by the way, I've done thousands of interviews over the years, and not one person I've ever interviewed who knew that I was editing him or her uh, has ever said we failed to get the essence of the importance of what he was saying. The Joseph Campbell interviews were originally, I interviewed, 26 hours. They've aired as six hours. But what aired was as authentic as I think it would have been if if he'd been standing here with you and you were talking to him. But I prepare, I prepare a lot. My staff says I prepare too much. <laughs> Rare is the person whose book I haven't read and whose, whose life I haven't explored. I mean, I have spent weeks, I spent months getting ready for Campbell, but on a weekly show you don't have that much time, so you, you, know, you learn to skim. Uh, and also to realize by skimming, what's the ore that you need to pursue further, dig a little deeper, and then I let it fly. I mean, I have a usually have a well constructed outline that is at least by the time I do it in my head, uh, and so I can go. But then there are sometimes when I just leave the 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 map uh, that that can just go off. But Paul. And I had breakfast this morning, and he gave me about four ideas for questions uh, uh, that, that I'm not going to forget. But he, he said, you know, to start the next interview, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> a great way to begin. He's a master conversationist, by the way, and I'm, I'm, I'm not flattering him. I'm just recognizing the truth of the matter. And, and he goes where his mind goes. And at, at, at our best, I don't do that. At my best, I'm very prepared, and I know where we're going. But some people have that capacity for instinctual uh, spontaneous conversation that i don 't, so I have to overcome that deficiency by preparation But i 've asked some stupid questions in my in, 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 in my life and some uninformed questions, but the truth of the matter is the other question the other reason that i 've had a long run at it is because I only talk to people who want to talk there 's nothing more frustrating than than interviewing a politician whose whole reason for being there is to conceal, not to reveal. And so over the years, I've mostly avoided conversation with politicians. The the most successful politician interview I ever did was Jimmy Carter in the 1976 campaign, in which we both wound up singing Amazing Grace at the end of that hour. (laughs) The most unsuccessful interview I have ever done was an hour with Henry Kissinger when he was Secretary of State. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, it didn't matter where I took the ball, he refused to take it. And no matter what I asked, he refused to answer straight forward. I think that was the time I decided that's enough. That was back in the 80s. So it's, it's easy to interview people who want to talk and who want to reveal their minds, not hide their minds. And The secret of my long run is because I really do finally mostly select only people who have something to say and want to say it and are glad to be asked even a stupid question. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.